We are grateful, our Father, that your mercies are new every morning. We are grateful for the uh, we're grateful for the mercy we have received. We look back over our lives and we see your invisible hand directing our steps, overseeing the chapters, writing the chapters before we existed. We look back and see the providential workings of your spirit which brought us to know you. Uh, our eyes were, were blinded, our hearts were darkened, and then at a certain appointed time, we saw the light of the truth of the gospel. And you came into our lives and you changed us, you regenerated us, you gave us your spirit. Old things passed away and all things became new. And for that, we are uh, infinitely grateful and, and not only through your providence and your grace did you save us from sin, but now through your providence and grace, you sustain us on a daily basis and you navigate our steps and you give us the wisdom for what faces us on a particular day. We thank you for the, for the mercy that is fresh, absolutely fresh every day. We, we thank you for the leadership. We thank you for the guidance of your spirit. We thank you for the truth of your word. We, we thank you, Lord, that we are not flailing in this world. A lot of people are. A lot of people are besides themselves with worry. A, a lot of people are desperate. A lot of people are wondering how in the world they're possibly going to make it. So they are, are taking all kinds of narcotics and different drugs just in order to find a way to cope. But when we understand that you are our sovereign father and that your mercies are new every morning, we really don't need any medication. We just live off of your truth. We, uh, we, are, we are blessed men to know you. We are blessed men to have your word. We are blessed men uh, that you have opened our eyes so that we can actually comprehend and understand truth. We're all in process. We're, we're in different places. We are dealing with different issues. But it's true of all of us that every morning there's a fresh delivery of mercy. We, uh, if we're not careful, we forget the mercy. If we're not careful, we begin complaining. If we're not careful, we begin whining. We don't want to be that way. We want to have the right perspective. We want to have the biblical perspective. We want to look at life through the bifocals of your word. So tonight, Lord, give encouragement to the guys who are discouraged. Give hope to the guys that have lost hope. And, and, and for guys who are here, and perhaps this is new to them, and perhaps the gospel is new, and this good news of Christ, and they're kind of in process, and, and they're just kind of showing up and, 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 and attempting to figure this out. Well, we've all been there, and we ask that uh, you would do your work tonight again in that process. Draw them to yourself. Open eyes so that they might behold the truth of Christ. We have no other hope than Jesus. Our hope is built on nothing less. 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We thank you for the gift of salvation, for the gift of eternal life, that Jesus went to the cross and took our sins upon him. He paid the debt we could never pay. And as a result of receiving his forgiveness and his gift of eternal life, we know where we are going. We will never go out of existence. We will never cease to receive your mercies. We are blessed men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John Newton, John Newton you know as the uh, writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Throughout his life, uh, when people would greet Newton on the street, they would say to him, they would say, uh, how are you today, sir? And Newton would reply, I am just as God would have me. There's a man who knew the word of God. I am just as God would have me. There was a man who lived under the sovereignty of God. There was a man who lived under the... Uh, the providence of God. I am just as God would have. How are you today, sir? I am just as God would have me. It's all under control. Because he's my father and he is sovereign and I'm living under his providence. I am just as God would have me. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is just as God would have him. But where he is is probably something that he did not anticipate. Uh, where he is, is in a foreign land. He was born and raised in Judah. But he, along with his friends, find themselves in a foreign land, the land of Babylon. Sometimes we read in the scriptures of the Chaldeans. When you read of the Chaldeans, they're the guys from Babylon. So in Daniel chapter 1, we find Daniel, and he's just a teenager, along with his buddies who we commonly know as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they're in this foreign land of Babylon. Uh, they have been taken from their homeland of Judah, and uh, a lot of things have changed. They, as, 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 as we have looked at over the last several weeks, uh, they have lost their nation. The nation of Judah is going to be in captivity for 70 years, and Daniel is, is going to be there in this new nation, in this strange nation. He's going to live there now for 70 years. Um, uh, they've lost their nation, they've lost their freedom, they have lost their liberty. I was driving uh, home today uh, about 1.30 and I'm listening to a, uh, a radio talk show guy and this woman calls in. She's extremely articulate. And at first I thought she was a little bit hysterical. But she was extremely articulate, found out she had a law degree, left the law practice to go home and have a family, and she's raising seven kids. And he just let her talk, and this guy usually doesn't let people talk. And she was incredibly articulate. And she was talking from her heart, and quite frankly was expressing her concern and her desperation and her worry about what is taking place. And she uh, never took a breath and she never stuttered and she was one impressive woman. And at one point she said to him after she painted the picture that as things as she saw it, she, she said, I need hope. 
I need hope, and may I say to you that I need you to give me hope. In fact, you're my only hope. And I thought, you were really doing well up until then. Uh, she was afraid she was going to lose her nation, and her kids were going to lose their freedom, and her kids were going to lose their, their liberty, you see. But she had her hope in the wrong place. There is no hope apart from God. There is no hope apart from Christ. He rules the nations. He is the king of kings. Is he not? He governs the world. He owns the world. He runs the world. So they would say to John Newton, how are you today, sir? Oh, I am just as God would have me. Why? Because my God rules the world. Here's Daniel in Babylon. He has lost his home, he's lost his family, he's lost his culture, he's lost his nation, he's lost his liberty, he's lost his freedom. He's in Babylon, young teenage kid with his buddies, and you know what? How are you today, Daniel? Well, I am just as God would have me. Where you are today in your life is just as God would have you. Because God is in control, and God is in charge, and God has a plan for your life. We can cite numerous scriptures. The one I always, my default scripture is in Psalm 139, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. When David, in Psalm 139, is talking about the providence of God in his life, he's basically saying, God, you knew me before you formed me. To Jeremiah the prophet, God said, before I formed you, I knew you. So David says, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance when I was a sperm and an egg. That's when you're unformed, right? Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So there is a providential plan. So how are you today, sir? I am just as God would have me. Where you are is where God would have you. Because he is in charge of your life, and he is in charge of Texas, and he's in charge of the United States. And he is in charge of Copenhagen. And he is in charge of uh, Europe. And he, he's in charge of the world, is he not? Yes, he is. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's in Babylon, and he is in captivity. We begin with verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials. We're speaking here of the Babylonian king. Orders this guy Ashpenaz. To do something, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, who they had taken, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Daniel and his buddies were part of this group. Youths in whom, teenagers in whom, there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. These, these guys were the cream of the cream. They were the best of the best endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them. Who? The guys from Israel, the young guys. To teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. There's going to be uh, an indoctrination process. So much of education is indoctrination. It just depends on who's doing the teaching. It just depends on what their value system is. It just depends on what their beliefs would be. Um, uh, Daniel and his friends believed in the one true God. 
they were in a system that believed in many gods. They believed in a system uh, we would call today that is multicultural. That sounds like a good term, doesn't it? Multicultural. Uh, when you get into it, you, you know, these guys are really good at coming up with good terms. They're able to take things and put really good names on them, like Planned Parenthood. Now you say you're getting political. I'm not getting political. I'm getting biblical and moral. God says that babies are to be protected in his word. Planned Parenthood has nothing. Who came up with that? Is that sly? Is that devious? The only planning involved there is getting rid of unwanted children. You see? I won't really go down that road, but thought I'd touch on it. Just, just for my own personal well-being. You know, that's deceptive. It's a lie. Multiculturalism. See, the problem... Here, here, here's the problem when you study the history of America. See, when you, let, let me back up. When you study, when you say multicultural, well, what's wrong with different cultures? Well, nothing. Nothing, I mean, nothing on the surface. But you see, these different cultures have different gods. There's your problem. Ah, that's a big problem. You see, because there's only one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's the only God. That's the God above every God. You get into multiculturalism, you got all these other gods. You see? One of the saddest things in the world to me is, you know, they got a Beatles resurgence going on right now. Um, George Harrison. Um, Jerry Garcia, Grateful Dead. Um, these guys from the 60s. You know where they buried those guys? They cremated them and they spread their ashes over on the Ganges River in India. One of the darkest, darkest, demonic places on the face of the earth is a false god. A false god. So they're in this, uh, they're in this Babylonian thing, and what's going to happen now is they're going to indoctrinate these guys with all of this uh, propaganda. The king appointed, you guys with me here? Verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed uh, that they should be educated for three years. So they're going to get, you know, they're going to get their, uh, their master's degree and, you know, maybe go on from there. It depends on how they do. They should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were entered the king's personal service. So these guys were hand select. These guys... Uh, uh, these guys are the cream of the crop. They were great physical specimens. They were in shape. They were good athletes. They, uh, they aced the SAT, didn't miss anything. I hate guys like that. It really bothers me when somebody's that smart. But these guys were smart. And some guys are that smart, and some guys are that gifted. So he picked the cream of the cream, best of the best. That's who these guys are. Why? Because they're going to train them and indoctrinate them in this godless culture for three years and then put them into the king's personal service. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, these are the four young guys from Judah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. Now they're going to give them a new identity. This is what you call propaganda. They're going to indoctrinate these guys. 
Uh, to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. Well, Daniel's original name meant God is my judge. His new name, Belteshazzar, means whom Bel favors. Bel is a false god. He's one of many gods in the Babylonian culture. All right, the next guy is uh, Hananiah. Hananiah's name means God is gracious. God is gift. The one true God is. He's going to be given a new name, which is uh, Shadrach. Shadrach means illumined by Shad. Shad was their sun god. The third guy is um, Mishael. Mishael, his name, means uh, who was like God. God is great. But now he's in this new multicultural polytheistic system of many gods. His new name is who was like Shaq. Shaq was a love goddess. Okay, now you've got the next guy, Azariah. He's got a new name, Abendigo. Uh, what does his name mean? Well, originally, uh, Azariah meant God is my helper. Now his new name means a, a, a servant of Nago. Nago was a fire god. So you see the indoctrination? You see the shift? There's a, the, the, these guys lost a whole bunch of stuff. Life is, um, life is full of change. Life is full of transition. Uh, life is, um, that's just the way life is. But this was one they probably hadn't counted on, although they were told by the prophets in advance that it was going to happen. There, there is a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk probably prophesied when these guys were, were young, um, perhaps towards the uh, end of Josiah's reign. If you had that sheet I passed out, and let's, let's not worry about the sheet right now if you don't have it, but uh, one, of the, one of the prophets in the uh, Old Testament was Habakkuk, and he's crying out to God about the condition of Judah. Uh, Josiah was a godly king. Josiah was the greatest of all the kings in terms of his heart, and his allegiance and his obedience to God. He outdid David. He outdid Hezekiah. He outdid all of them. But once Josiah died, things went downhill in a hurry, and that's when the Babylonians began the process of coming in when it was handed over to his sons. Um, Habakkuk would cry out to God, this prophet, and he would cry out to God, and he said, Lord, our, our nation's in trouble. There's violence everywhere. We don't have justice in our courts. We're just, we, we are a wicked, wicked nation, and we've forgotten you, and we've forgotten your laws, and he's just crying out to God, oh, God, do something, oh, God, do something. You're silent, I'm not hearing from you. And then God told him what he was going to do. And when God told him what he was going to do, God's answer was more disturbing than God's silence. God said, well, here's what I'm going to do, pal. He didn't say pal. I made that up. He said, here's what I'm going to do. Hey, you guys have wandered from me. You don't listen to me. You ignore me. You're living like you're going after these false gods. You're living immoral lives. You, 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 you've forgotten my covenant. You've forgotten my mercies and my blessings. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in the nation of Babylon. And they're going to judge you, and they're going to take you into captivity. And Habakkuk says, oh, you can't do that. God, you can't do that. They're worse than we are. 
God can do anything he wants. God, you wouldn't do that. You, I mean, do you know about these guys? Yeah, God knows about them. God, they're vicious. They're horrific. They, they don't... They're more wicked than we are. What does God say in Isaiah 55, 8? My ways are not your ways. And all the way through the book of Habakkuk, he's struggling with what, what God's going to do. But you know what's very interesting? You watch Habakkuk go through a process, and he comes to grips with the work of God and the judgment of God, and he finds a place at the end of the book of contentment in the plan of God, in the providence of God. Sometimes we struggle with what God's doing. Sometimes we don't get what God is doing. Why was Daniel in Babylon? Can I tell you why? It's just like what John Newton said. I am just as God was, would have me. He was in Babylon because it was, God, it was part of God's plan for the nation. He was part of the nation. God has, plan, God has a plan for the ages. God has a plan for the nation. But God hasn't forgotten individuals. And God somehow weaves it all together and is working all the parts and all the details. And it's all to his glory and it's all for the good of his people. He hasn't forgotten you. Not at all. He didn't forget Daniel. This was part of, this was part of God's plan for Daniel from before the foundations of the world. Daniel, can I tell you why Daniel was in Babylon? He was in Babylon because it was his destiny to be in Babylon. You have a destiny. God has a plan. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, not good works to be saved. You were already saved in Ephesians 2.8. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before you were ever born, that you might walk in them. So God has a plan. God has a destiny for your life, good and bad. He takes the bad and he'll turn it for your good at the appropriate time. Time. That's Romans 8.28. So that's why Daniel is in uh, that's why Daniel is in Babylon with his buddies. Uh, if you've ever read uh, Churchill's biography, it's fascinating. I've read four, five, six, seven of them. Interesting guy, interesting life. On the night that he was called in by the king and given the responsibility of becoming prime minister. And the nation of England was up against it. Things were bad. Things were horrific. The appeasers had been in control. Um, Churchill recorded his state of mind on being given the power to lead the West, even as Hitler's power was cresting and England was in great peril, and here's what um, he said. Here's what he wrote. Thus, at the outset of this mighty battle, I acquired the chief power in the state. As I went to bed about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. <laughs> relief? You got the whole world against you. What's this sucker drinking? Well, he drank quite a bit, actually. <laughs> but you got to listen to what this, this guy's amazing. I, he goes to bed, everything's against England, the whole world's falling apart, Hitler's marching across Europe, he's made prime minister, it's put in his pocket, and he says, I, I was conscious as I went to bed at 3 a.m. with a profound sense of relief. Why? I at least now had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. <laughs> 
I felt as if I were walking with destiny. Capital D, God. And that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Now, I'm telling you, that's biblical. That's absolute, flat-out biblical. Eleven years in the political wilderness had freed me. And there were moments when he would fight off for weeks the black dog, depression, because they put him out to pasture. Lady Astor was meeting with a group of uh, uh, with English di diplomats 11 years prior, was meeting with Stalin, and Stalin was asking about the leaders of England and who were the up-and-comers, and she mentioned several names, and he said, uh, what about Churchill? And she said, Churchill, ha, he's finished. He's finished. He wasn't finished. God was preparing him. Eleven years in the political wilderness had freed me from ordinary party antagonisms. My warnings over the past six years had been so numerous, so detailed, and now were so vi terribly vindicated that no one could gainsay me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or with want of preparation for it. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. This guy was a piece of work. Did you catch that? I went to sleep and I didn't have any need for a nice, pleasant dreams. Why not? Facts are better than dreams. What's the fact? I'm here by destiny. I've been prepared for this all of my life. That's why I have a sense of relief. The whole world is against me, and I welcome it. Why? He knew the facts. He knew the facts. So if you were to ask him, how are you doing today, Mr. Churchill? Oh, I am just as God would have me. He might say along with John Newton. By the way, how are you doing today? I am just as God would have me. Oh, that means everything's good and easy in your life? That's not what it means. I am just as God would have me. And there's some good, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of mercy, and there's some struggles, and there's some difficulties. I have no clue how I'm going to get through it. But I am just as God would have me, because he is my father. I love his phrase, facts are better than dreams. You can't live off of dreams. You have to live off of facts. You live off the fact of God's sovereignty. Uh, you may say, for every time I hear you, you're talking about the sovereignty of God. That's because you can't live without the sovereignty of God. You can't keep sane without the sovereignty of God. If he's not in control, if he's not governing the world, I'm telling you, it's hopeless. It's just flat out hopeless. But the fact of the matter is, he is controlling the world. He is sovereign. He does have a plan. Nothing is out of control. It's on schedule. Therefore, I can be at peace. Um, I, turn, uh, I turn 60 next month. I've got to tell you something funny. Uh, I thought I turned 60 today. <laughs> I really did. Uh, about four days ago, somehow I got screwed up, and I thought this was October. 
Uh, no, October is next month. But I, I just did. I just turned a screw, and for some reason, I suddenly thought it was October, and October 30th is my birthday. Well, today is October 30th. Actually, and, and actually, I got a little bothered because I was going to change some things on um, some insurance, and I needed to do it before my birthday, and it hit me yesterday morning. I went, oh, my gosh, I didn't do that. I got 24 hours to do that. No, actually, I've got about 30, uh, 30 days to do that. I can't tell you what happened, except uh, maybe it's proof that I'm turning 60. <laughs> but I really got screwed up. My, um, my brother-in-law was here from Atlanta maybe five or six weeks ago, and we were having dinner and uh, just getting caught up, and Brian said, uh, he said, hey, let me ask you something. He said, you know, Steve, I'm turning 50 this year. I said, that's right. I've been thinking a lot about that, and I said, yeah, I bet you have. That's big. He said, but you're turning 60, and I said, yeah. He said, so what are you thinking about? I said, what do you mean, what am I thinking about? He said, I know what I'm thinking about at 50. What are you thinking about at 60? And we talked for a couple hours about it. What he's thinking about when I'm... Because, you know, it's a transition. It's a change. Big deal. He was the first guy to ask me that. Over the last six weeks, I've had two or three other guys ask me, what are you thinking about as you turn 60? I was speaking in Wichita Falls this weekend. I, uh, Saturday morning, I went to breakfast with a young pastor, and we're talking. He said, so you hit 60 this year? I said, yeah. He said, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah. He says, how do you live your life? He said, what do you mean, how do I live my life? He goes, well, how, that's what I mean. What do you do? What, what? I'm asking, how do you live your life? What do you do? What do you do? I mean, how do you, how do you go about life? How do you approach life? I said, well, that's a very interesting question, and you're the third guy basically to ask me that here recently. I said, here's what I do. I live life um, basically, I, I, got, I, I got two key things in my life. I got a red leather chair, and I got a black leather Bible. That's how I live my life. And here's what I do in the morning. I get up, and depending on my whim, and depending on the temperature, I either get a 48-ounce thing of iced tea, or I get a mug of hot tea, or I get a mug of coffee. It just depends. Sort of a hormonal issue in my life I'm working through. <laughs> but whatever beverage I'm going to get, I get it, and then I go down to the living room, and I sit down in a red leather chair. And I've sat in that chair for a long, long time. Now, years and years ago, about 10, 11 years ago, I used to go to McDonald's early in the morning, but I quit doing that because we lived out in the country and McDonald's was kind of on the edge and nobody was there and now all kinds of people are there, so I quit going there. And I just get up and I get my stuff and I go sit in my red leather chair. And that red leather chair, uh, I, I, oh, and then I have my black leather Bible. And, uh, and I make notes in my Bible. And sometimes I don't have a ballpoint pen, so I grab a Sharpie. And that's why there are Sharpie pen marks on the red leather chair. Different points. And I got a great wife, because she's never jumped on me for the Sharpie marks on the red leather chair. She's mentioned it, but she's never got on my case. <laughs> so I try to use a ballpoint pen. And, um, and then I, 
I've shown you guys this before. I got my calendar. I read four chapters a day in the scriptures. It takes me through the Bible in a year. Why do I do that? Why do I do that? Because that's um, how I live my life. I, 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 I got to get in the red leather chair and I got to get my black leather Bible because I got to live life that day and I need to start with God. I'm going to be lied to for the rest of the day. Things are going to be distorted. I'm going to be told half-truths. I'm going to be tempted, so I need to begin with him. So I do. That's how I put ballast in my boat. That's how I weather the storms. That's where I start. That's where I begin. And, And I'll tell you what, it... And as I sit in that chair, and this young pastor is asking me, I said, well, I sit in that chair, and I got my Bible. And then in the morning, what I do is, uh, then what I do is, I, I just stop, and I, and I try to thank God for the mercies of yesterday. I go over them. You know, spending time with the Lord is sort of like building a fire. You don't start with a raging bonfire. You put a little kindling on it and get it going. You know, how do I stoke it? I begin by thanking God for what he did for me the day before. And then after that, I kind of turn my thoughts to, I'm going to need new mercy today. And Lord, I know I got this on my plate and this, and there may be some other things coming I don't know anything about. In fact, there probably are. I don't know what that is, but would you give me what I need to handle those things? And I kind of go from there. Uh, if there's an issue of sin in my life, it's usually pointed out to me as I'm in the red leather chair. It's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if there's an issue of sin, you know what I need to do? I need to take care of it. It might mean that I need to talk with Mary or somebody, or I don't know, or just something with the Lord. I don't know. Just do what I need to do. I live my life out of that chair and out of, the, out of that red leather chair and out of this black leather Bible. That's kind of how I live my life from that. That's, my, that's kind of the base. That's, what's your base? You've got to have a base. You've got to have a place. You've got to have a place where you meet with the Lord. And then you do business with God. And I'm going to tell you something. In that living room, if things aren't right in that house, relationally, things aren't right with God. If things aren't right with my wife, things aren't right with my kids, I got no business flying out on Friday going to talk to somebody in some other city, right? It needs to be right in that house because that's where Christianity is lived out. That's where Christianity is applied is at home. And then I take it from there. When I read God's word, I read facts. Facts are better than dreams. If there's a theme tonight, here's the theme. Facts are better than dreams. Uh, We started with John Newton's uh, greeting. How are you today, sir? I am just as God would have me. That's a fact. Is it not? If God's sovereign, if God's in control, then where you are is just as God would have me. That's where I am. Is it where I thought I would be at this point in my life? Maybe not. Maybe not. 
You know, we're always making plans. Have you noticed this? Nothing wrong with making plans. Nothing wrong with having a day timer. Nothing wrong with doing a seven-year strategic plan. Here's what I've learned over the years. When you make plans, write them in pencil. Put them in pencil. We, we, we make plans. We get time schedules. Make sure it's in pencil. Because if it's in a Sharpie, you're in trouble. Because, can I tell you why? You don't know what you're doing. And guess what? Neither do I. Can I show you something in Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 10. When we're young, we tend to think more highly of ourselves. Because we haven't, uh, we don't have a lot of miles on the tires. And we probably think we more know, more a little bit more about life than we actually do. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. Here's quite a statement. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. What? Well, of course it's in a man to direct his steps. No, it isn't. You don't have what it takes. In fact, when I go about life, living my life, directing my life, directing my steps, you know what I do? I screw it up. And so do you. When you were in charge of your life, did you not screw it up? Yeah, you did. Sure you did. I'm reading this, I've been reading this book, The Undercover Revolution, How Fiction Changed Britain. It's talking about the Victorian age and uh, guys like Robert Louis Stevenson and then some of his cohorts. Men that were raised in Christian homes that rejected Christianity. Interesting little book and how it affected the nation and how fiction became the focus of literature in England and how much of the fiction was written by men who rejected the God of the Bible and the truth of Christianity that were, they were raised in in their homes. Just an interesting book. Uh, one of Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, mentor, not mentors, but friends, was a guy by the name of W.E. Henley. Henley wrote a poem uh, that swept across England called Invictus. And it goes like this. Uh, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. These are the words of a fool. It matters not how straight the gate. By the way, that's a biblical illusion. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And fewer are those who find it, Jesus said. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. If your name is not found in the book of life, you'll be cast in a lake of fire. It matters, all, all these biblical allusions here, why? He was raised in biblical Christianity. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Yeah, and good luck, pal. Oh, my unconquerable soul. I am the captain of my fate. You're an idiot. And so am I. And so are you, right? We've all done that. And look where it got us. We, we ruin things. Why is that? Uh, I know, Lord, it's not a man, a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. We don't have it. We don't have what it takes. Now, here's the flip side of that. Is, is Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, no, no, Proverbs uh, uh, 16. And I think it's verse 9. That simply says this. 
Here's the positive side of this. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. We start out thinking we're the captain of our souls. Uh, You know, the great thing about Jesus, he not only saves us from our sin, he saves us from stupidity. I've got enough hours, believe me, I've got enough hours, I could get a PhD in stupid. And so do you. Because for a long time, you know, I'm the captain of my soul. Oh, I'm going to direct my steps. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Thank God for this. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. John Newton was uh, planning his life. He was, a, he was a, a captain of a ship, a slaver ship. He found Christ miraculously. Before he found Christ, this captain of a slave ship actually became a slave, and his master was a Negro woman. That didn't happen too often back then. It's what God used to break him and to call upon the name of the Lord, you see. Interesting how God works. You know, his soul was unconquerable. He was the captain of his soul. No, he wasn't. He was chained to a post, and a black woman would beat him in in a nation where blacks were being beaten by white. He was the only white guy on the island being beaten by a black. Now, there's the hand of God. And you know what it did? It saved his life. It saved his life because it brought him low. He had all kinds of dreams for his life as a young man. I don't know where you are. Maybe you have dreams. Maybe at this point in your life, you imagine that you would be... Down here, up here, but you're back here, down here. Can I say something to you? That's okay if Christ is your Savior and Christ is your Lord. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. But you've got to live off of facts. You can't live off dreams. You live off facts. Here's a fact. Psalm 90. Why don't you turn over there with me? See, this is why I read the Bible in the mornings. This is why I put the word of God in my heart. i got to live off facts. I can't live off dreams. Psalm 90. Moses wrote Psalm 90. And, you know, we've got guys here at different stages of life. Got any guys here tonight in their 20s? Anybody in their 20s? Yeah, we got some guys. Good. Glad you're here. Uh, Those are the guys that are texting and not paying attention. That's kind of a joke, guys. No, you're, you're paying attention. I'm just horsing around. The rest of us don't know how to text. We don't even know how to use our thumbs. Uh... You can, and we're happy for you. How many of you guys are in your 30s? Let me see your hands. Okay, good, great. Uh, these are guys that are married and have kids and mortgages and are out of work and have pains in their chest. It's great being a man in your 30s, isn't it? You're trying to figure out how you're going to make it and how you're going to... You're going to make it. God will make a way. He'll show you his faith. And then you've got guys in their 40s. Where are the guys in the 40s? Okay, good. We're glad you're here. You're in midlife. You're in crisis. You, you don't know what you're doing. Great. And that's a good place to be if you're there, you know? A lot of guys go through midlife crisis. The guys that don't go through crisis at 40, that's because they went through it somewhere around 30. It's either going to get you at 30 or 40, but you're going to hit a crisis. Oh, and guess who's sovereign over your crisis? God. It's part of his plan, not yours. You probably don't have that on your day timer. Crisis next year. (laughs) March 3rd. But it's on his. 
Why? Yeah, he was going to grow up in Christ. He's going to show you his greatness. He's going to show you that his power is perfected in weakness, not strength. What are we on, the 50s? I can't remember because I'm turning 60. <laughs> 50s. We're on you 50? Unbelievable. You're going to be 50. You're 53. It's great. You're in great shape. 50 plus. Jay, you're in your 50s? Really? Gosh. Guys, you guys are looking good. Good for you. You're going to fall apart in the next five years. <laughs> How many of you guys 60s? 70s? You got guys 80s? Yeah. Anybody 90? 100? 110? <laughs> Where are those guys? They're dead. Sorry to bring it up. But that's where we're going. We're all going to die. Oh, by the way, you may die, but you will never go out of existence. You will always be. Always. And you'll either spend eternity in heaven or heaven. <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> no, I was, every, every time a rock star dies, they're in heaven. It just cracks me up. Everybody's in heaven. All these guys that live like hell, they all go to heaven, the world says. <laughs> Jesus said there's a heaven and there is a hell. And we say it with tears. But Jesus tells the truth. Psalm chapter 90, Moses says, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. Soon it is gone. You guys that are 60, 70, 80, you can't believe you're there. Sir, I'm in, where am I? Psalm 90, verse 10. Thank you. Some of the other, verse 10, yes, sir. Some of, the, some of the guys here are actually paying attention. I'm not. Psalm 90, verse 10. Soon it is gone, we fly away. Look at verse 12. So, teach us to number our days that we may present to you, watch this, a heart of wisdom. Of wisdom. You know what every guy in this room needs tonight? See, and it doesn't matter if you're 25. Hey, if you're 25, you've never been 25 before. This is all new to you, being 25. You've been 22. But you're not 22, now you're 25. This is a fresh stretch of trail. You've never been down. So what do you need? If this is a fresh stretch of trail, oh, you need wisdom. If you're, if you're 43, what do you need? Ah, guess what you need at 43? You've never been 43 before. Your kids have never been the ages they've been. You know, kids, kids usually are more, they're easier. I, my experience was they were easier to raise when they were little. They get bigger, it gets a little more challenging. It's a fresh it's a fresh trail, is it not? What do you need at 43? You need wisdom. 68, what do you need? Wisdom. 82, what do you need? You need all the way through life, every guy in this room, no matter who you're sitting next to, where you are in life, whatever your age, we all need wisdom. Don't we? 
That's why you need a Bible. That's why you need facts instead of dreams. You live off facts. Okay. But we're all in process, right? We're all in process. God's got a plan for your life. God's got a plan for my life. He, he has set the moment, uh, going back to that Psalm 139 passage, uh, we, we exist because he set the moment of your conception. He set the moment of your birth. He has set the moment of your death. It's appointed for a man once to die, then comes judgment. You don't know when that moment is. I don't either. But when we come to know Christ, what happens is there is a process that begins to develop in our lives where God begins to mature us. I've been reading um, Ian Murray, I, uh, two of his books, actually. And uh, one of his books is called Heroes. It's on some of the great men of the faith. And one of the guys he writes about is John Newton. That's where I found that little quote, I am just as God would have me. But one of the things that Newton, who became a pastor, would emphasize, let me just read this. Let me just read this section to you. Um, the heading is, experience and understanding are gradual. That's the heading. We're maturing in Christ. Do we mature overnight? No. Is there a giant Christian microwave? Wouldn't that be nice if there were? You know, you got that microwave at home, and doesn't yours on the front have those little recipes and the times involved? Yeah. You know, popcorn three minutes. Man, it used to take me 14 minutes to make popcorn. We have the because I do it the old, I had the pan, I did the old man, had the pan, heat up the, the coil, had to get red, that took what, six minutes? Put the butter in, let the butter melt, put it in. Put the one in first, pops in, you put the rest in, about 14 minutes, 15 minutes, then Mary came home one day from Sam's with a microwave. Three minutes, popcorn. Unbelievable. Sometimes I wish there was a giant Christian microwave. Don't you? Spiritual maturity, four minutes. <laughs> so I jump in, put, mm. <laughs> hey, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> I'm mature, it didn't cost me anything. You know, patience with children, six hours, 12 minutes. Some things still take time, because it's hard and it's difficult. There are no microwaves in a Christian life. It's gradual. Here's what Newton said. Newton regarded it as of first importance for ministers and Christians to understand that grace matures slowly. Few lessons were repeated more often to fellow ministers than this one. It comes up repeatedly, and here are three quotes from Newton. Number one, God works powerfully, but for the most part, gently and gradually. Here's a second quote. He does not teach all at once, but by degrees. Number three, a Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak, the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but in time becomes a great deep-rooted tree. He based this on Mark 4.28 that talked about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God grows. It grows first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. The seed has got to be put into the soil, and then it takes time. 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 The Christian life is a process of growth. 
That's a fact. So, what do we need to live the Christian life? What do we what we, we just saw Psalm 90, so teach us the number of our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Well, does God give me all the wisdom I need for the rest of my life today? No, he's going to give it to me gradually, as I need it, when I need it, for that day. Let's go back to Daniel. I want to show you how this works. These guys are young men. They're young men. Now, as we go through Daniel, we're going to see them grow. We're going to see them mature. We're going to see them age. But as you get into Daniel chapter 1, they're captives. We know that. That's very, very clear to us. But immediately, they're in, a, they're in a particular crisis. Why are they in a crisis? Well, let's go back to Daniel chapter 1, and we'll see what's going on here. And I want you to see how God gives them wisdom, even as they are young men. They're going to need wisdom all the way through the book of Daniel. Because they're going to continue to face situations and challenges. And they're going to mature and they're going to grow. What Daniel faced as an older man would have crushed him as a younger man. Why? Because he wasn't ready for it. God is a good father. God knows what we need. God knows the maturing process. Verse 8 of Daniel 1. Daniel, watch this. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Uh, or, or the idea is Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Now, I, I've read four different theories this week on what this was about and all of this. Let me just say what I, let me, let me bottom line this. There were dietary laws in the Old Testament. Whatever the diet was, it violated the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And Daniel, as a good Jew, covenant-keeping, was not going to violate whatever those things were. He wasn't going to do it, so he didn't. So he resolved. He had a conviction now watch the wisdom of God here in this young man's life as this young man is in a very tight place. Sometimes in life, as we're maturing and growing, we're in tight places and we need the wisdom of God. And if you make a wrong move or you make a wrong judgment, the effects can be devastating. In Psalm 46, verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. I've alluded to this fact before in the New American Standard. There's more of a rough-hewn translation in the margin, and it reads like this. God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. You ever get in a tight place? And the decision is critical? What do you need in a tight place? You need the wisdom of Almighty God. Watch God give him wisdom. He resolves in his heart he cannot violate the dietary standard. He cannot violate his conscience. It's a conviction. God bless him for having a conviction. Is it not refreshing to see men of God who have convictions? Yes, it is. That's so refreshing. Now watch this. Daniel made up his mind. He would not defile himself with the king's choice food. So... I got four little bullets for you. I'm kind of proud of these bullets. Because I work in the letter O. I'll tell you, I worked on these, Doug. I sweated over these and I got them down. You ready? Here's the first one. He opted out. He opted out? Yeah. All these young men, diet, you got to do it because this is going to make you stronger. I can't do this. Maybe because that was food sacrificed to idols. I don't know. 
Maybe he had pork. I don't know. But there was an issue, and he couldn't break his conviction in his heart. If God's put a conviction in your heart biblically, don't you dare break it. Okay? Now watch, though. He's in a very difficult position how he handles this. Here, here's my second one. He offers an option. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Earlier, it says in 8, he sought permission from the commander of the, officials that, uh, of the officials that he might not devile himself. So he goes to the guy in the authority and he says, hey, I got a problem here. And he talks to the guy. You know what? That was wisdom. That was wisdom. What's the best? Lord, how do I do this? Lord, how do... See, sometimes I'm in that red leather chair and I got my black leather Bible and I just put it down and I said, Lord, I don't know how I do this. What do you want me to do? I need you to direct my steps. What do I say here? When do I say it? I need you to show me. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally without reproach. <coughs> God will give you wisdom if you ask. Now watch this. Nine. God granted Daniel the favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, now here's his dilemma. Watch this. I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. In other words, hey, my, my, my head's on the line here. If I don't do what the king says, I mean, it's going to cost me my life. I'd like to work with you here, but listen, I'm putting my own skin on the line here. I mean, it's a dilemma. Now watch what Daniel does here. Watch the option that he offers. Verse 11, Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over the guys, verse 12, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. He gives the guy an option. Hey, think about this. Kick this around. Here's my third one. He overcame the objection. Look at verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter that doesn't mean what we think it means. It means healthier than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. God honored their convictions, Daniel and his buddies. He honored it. He gave them wisdom how to navigate. Here's my fourth one. Uh, Daniel overtook the opposition, or may I say this, Daniel overtook the appeasers. The guys that caved in, he overtook them. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, the king. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. That's the wisdom of God. I mentioned to you, and I'll mention this in closing, I've been working through this little book that Jeremiah Burroughs wrote in 1648 on contentment. Why would I be reading a book on contentment? Because I needed to read a book on contentment. 
because sometimes I look around and I forget to look at my life and the events of my life and my world through the lens of the Bible. And when I forget to look at what's going on around me through the lens of the Bible, I get discontent with what's going on. When I look at life through the Word of God and through the fact that God is sovereign and we're on schedule with His divine plan, I calm down. And my anxiety goes level, level goes down significantly. Um, he's talking here about contentment. And the opposite of contentment is murmuring. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel would wander, they would complain and murmur against God. He's talking about the antidote to murmuring. Hey, these guys were in a situation they didn't want to be in. Did they want to lose their nation, their liberty, their freedom? Did they want to lose it? No, but that's where they were, by the appointment of God. How do you not murmur? How do you not complain? Listen to what this guy says. Burrow, 1648. The spirit of a Christian should be a lion-like spirit. As Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah... So we should manifest something of the lion-like spirit of Jesus Christ. He manifested his lion-like spirit in passing through all afflictions and troubles whatsoever without any murmuring against God. When he came to drink that bitter cup and even the dregs of it, he prayed indeed to God that if it were possible, it might pass from him. But immediately he then said, not my will, but Thine be done. That's the heart of a lion. I put myself in your care. I put myself in your stead. You probably know that C.S. Lewis wrote his Chronicles of Narnia. And in that story, there is this great lion by the name of Aslan, who represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And at one particular point in the story, one of the children who really is not that familiar with Aslan comes up to Aslan as he's just there with his paws out, relaxing. And he comes up and he puts his hand and pats Aslan, and suddenly there is this deep guttural roar, subdued but deep. And the little child steps back and looks at his friend who knows Aslan well and says, Is he safe? And the, and the other boy responds, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Our God is good. Now, if he's your father, you're safe. He's safe if he's your father. Why would John Newton say, I am just as God would have me? Oh, he's my God. He's my savior. He's my father. He's the great lion who's in absolute control. He's got my life under control. The wrath that was meant for me was poured out on Christ. He's got a plan for my life. He'll navigate me. Am I in a tight place? He'll get me through. His mercies are new every morning. That's the God we serve. That's the God we need to know through Christ. We bow before you, our great Father, and thank you. What a great God you are.
That's why we can face what's ahead of us in the remaining few hours of this day, and then we get up in the morning after getting rest. And as we go to sleep tonight, we don't need sweet dreams. We don't need pleasant dreams. We don't need Walt Disney stories as we go to sleep. We just gonna, we're going to wake up. Oh, and you give to your beloved even in their sleep. Help us, Lord, not to live as atheists. We're not atheists, but we can live like atheists. If we don't believe your word and we don't believe your promises and we don't believe that you're going to take care of us and if we don't believe that you're going to make a way, you want us to trust you. We belong to you. You're good, and for those of us who know Christ, you're safe. But you are to be feared. You love us enough that if we get away from you, you'll discipline us as sons. Keep us close to you. It's the safest place in the world. Because of this fact, help us to sleep well tonight. And face the day anew tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray.